Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Galatians chapter 1. Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. And I am delighted this morning to begin with you what I hope will be something of a 14-part or so sermon series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And it would be a massive understatement to say that Galatians is a remarkably important letter. It is a very significant letter. Now, while every book of the Bible is significant, every book is important, Galatians, it stands in in a certain class. And the reason is because it is a letter that is absolutely central to our faith and to the Christian message. And this has been the assessment of many throughout the course of church history. Galatians has been referred to as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. It's been called the battle cry of the Reformation, or even the Christian's declaration of independence. It's that important. The early church father, Jerome, once said that when he read the letter of Galatians, he could hear the sound of thunder. It was the reformer, Martin Luther, in his famous commentary on Galatians, who called it, this letter, his Katerina von Bora. That's the name of his wife, his Katerina von Bora. He said, the epistle epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. That in essence, Luther, he, he was... He was bound to this letter. He was married to this letter. It was was the love of his life. In fact, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he, he said about Luther's commentary on Galatians that outside of the Bible, outside of Holy Scripture, it was the greatest book that he had ever read. Another author he calls the letter of Galatians a sharp sword And one of the books of the Bible that the devil loves to blunt. Now why? Why is it so important? Why is it that important? And the reason is because in this letter, what Paul is doing here is he is unpacking for us the very heart of the gospel message. Of what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. That Paul, he unpacks in these Six chapters for us, the very meaning of the cross, the very purpose, the very reason for the cross. So the book of Galatians, it's all about the gospel. It's all about the message, the good news of Christ crucified. In fact, for all of the various complexities and the difficulties that this letter presents to Bible readers, as we'll see as we make our way through this letter, and I hope to address each of those with you, However, the message of Galatians, the message is actually abundantly clear. And at the very heart of that message, this letter, it answers this fundamental foundational question. How are sinners made right with God? How are we justified before God? And Paul's answer to this question, it is resounding and it is clear. In fact, notice with me. Turn to chapter 2 there for a moment. Look down, chapter 2, verse 16. Here it is. Here is is the point of this letter. Here's the heart and soul of this entire letter. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times, three times in this one single verse, Paul answers that question. 
And his answer is that in order for anyone to be justified, in order for anyone to be saved, God must put us in a right relationship with himself. He must declare us righteous in his own sight, not on the basis of our actual condition, not on the basis of our performance, not on the basis of obedience to any commands or any laws or any work we do. No, but simply and only, he says, on the grounds of faith in Christ alone. The ESV Study Bible says this about the letter of Galatians. In one way or another, everything, everything in this letter is related to Paul's defense of justification by faith alone. So Galatians, it is about this central core doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's what this letter is all about. Now, you may say, well, Pastor, I've already believed all that. I've already heard all that before. I already know all that. So why study Galatians? Right? Why do Christians need Galatians then? I'm so glad you asked. Let me give you, can I give you two reasons? Number one, here's why we need to study this letter. Because we can never, church, be too clear on the gospel. We can never be too clear on the gospel. I want us to be a church that is abundantly clear on the gospel. You know why? Because if we assume the gospel, we will quickly lose the gospel. We can never be too clear on the gospel of what it is and frankly, what it is not. And as you read through this letter, what you see is that Paul has no hesitation whatsoever to be clear on both, on what it is and what it is not. You see, the Galatians, as we'll see, they, they knew the gospel. They understood the gospel. They had, they had believed the gospel and yet one of the primary reasons, one of the main reasons that Paul writes this letter to them is because they are in danger of losing the gospel. In fact, notice in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Which in verse 7, he says, is really no gospel at all. So in effect, these, these Christians, these churches, they were in danger of losing, of deserting the gospel. How so? Well, because they were distorting it. They were twisting its message. And just how serious was that? Well, look down verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. If anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Literally, let him be damned. This is serious stuff, folks. Eternity rests here. If you get the gospel wrong, you go to hell. And so, beloved, I, I think that this means that in, in every generation, in every age, from the first century to the 21st century, the church must continually revisit and recommit to and re-explain with absolute clarity. We must articulate and defend and define what exactly and precisely the gospel is. Why? Because of the unceasing danger to compromise and to twist its message. Because to be off an inch is to be off a mile. And there are many counterfeit gospels out there. Not just in the first century, in the 21st century as well. Take, for example, the self-help gospel. Self-help gospel. It's about becoming a better you. You hearing that preached today? Christian Smith, the sociologist, calls it moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's about preaching morals. That's it. Preaching how-tos. That's not the gospel. Take the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. Take the social justice gospel or the humanitarian gospel that says it's all about reforming society and, and changing culture. It's all about, how about the political gospel? Man, we're hearing that in our day. 
And friends, none of those are gospels. They all distort the gospel message. And so, church, we've got to get the gospel right. And so this letter then, it should stand as a reminder to us of the danger of losing the true gospel for a counterfeit gospel. And therefore, we have to know it. We have to be able to defend it. And I pray in the course of this study that it would help us to clarify and solidify yet again, yet again, our understanding of what the gospel is and what it's not. But here's the second reason I think we need to study it. Reason number two is because I think that what we need, what you need, Christian, is a greater, a deeper confidence and freedom and joy in the gospel. You see, I think many of us, we know the facts of the gospel. We know the truths of the gospel. But I wonder how many of us who know those truths and can recite those truths, I wonder, wonder how many of us, that knowledge of those truths is actually leading you into a deeper confidence, a deeper freedom, a deeper rest, a deeper intimacy with God. I wonder how many of you are actually walking daily in the joy and the freedom that the gospel brings. Because, you see, I I think that for many Christians, sadly, while we say we believe these truths, functionally, we don't live like it. We don't live like we believe it because we live in insecurity. We live in uncertainty where we stand in our relationship with God, wondering if we have done enough wondering if we've obeyed enough, wondering if we're good enough, and so we live in fear and we live in doubt before him, as if God is just this demanding boss, is this teacher that gives this impossible test, always critiquing, always demanding. He's never satisfied with us, and so we have no confidence before him because we're always wondering if deep down, deep down, he really accepts us. In fact, we sort of have this twofold approach to our relationship with God. Here it is. The first one is distance. And what I mean by that is we, we sin and then we stay away because God has to cool off. Maybe you grew up in a home like that. So we just keep our distance from Him. And then the second is performance. Now I've got to earn my way back into His good graces. That's the way we approach Him. And so we live in bondage to sin and guilt and shame and we are lacking any joy any freedom, any peace, and thus the Christian life, it becomes about doing more, it becomes about trying harder, and it's not life-giving, it's not transforming. Is that you this morning? And yet in Galatians 5.1, Paul says, it is for freedom, freedom, that Christ has set you free. God wants you to have freedom. He wants you to have joy in the gospel, and that only comes from truly understanding it and what it should produce in your life. And so my prayer as we study this letter and make our way through this letter is that you would have a deeper confidence and a deeper freedom and a deeper joy in God. That's enough introduction. Okay, let's look at the text. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Let me invite you to stand as we read this letter, these opening words of the Apostle Paul together. Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Well, in, in reading the letter of Galatians, and, and frankly, in reading any New Testament letter, any New Testament epistle, it's sort of like listening to a one-sided phone call. In other words, what I mean is that we, unfortunately, we have the disadvantage as the readers of only hearing one end of the phone conversation, right? So we we have 
Paul's words recorded here for us, but we, we don't have the exact words or the exact situations or context that what prompted him to write this letter. In fact, in, in this, notice, in this case, in verse 2, it's to the churches in Galatia. We don't know what's really going on here in these churches. It's according to their own words. However, that shouldn't discourage us from our study. It shouldn't discourage us in, in thinking that we can't know and understand what's going on here in this letter. No, it simply means that our understanding of the background of this letter and the context and the, the situation and what's prompted him, it's found only as we examine the text, as we look at this letter. So why did Paul write this letter? What's prompted him to write this letter to the Galatians? So let's just briefly ask some questions here that will help us in understanding why he wrote this letter. Question number one, who were the Galatians? Who were the Galatians? Notice in verse 2, this letter is written to the churches of Galatia. So who were they? Well, first notice that this is a circular letter. And what I mean by that is it's not written to one particular church. It's written, notice, to, to several churches in Galatia. Verse 2, he says, to the churches, plural, of Galatia. Galatia, as we know it today, it's modern-day Turkey. It, it's, a, it's a very large region. In fact, if you look at the Bible, your maps in the back of your Bible, you can see that it extends all the way from the Black Sea down to the Mediterranean Sea. It's a large area. And it was in that southern part of Galatia where Paul and Barnabas, if you remember, they had been sent out by the church at Antioch, and they had there planted several churches during their first missionary journey. Places like Antioch of Pisidia and Derby and Lystra and Iconium. In fact, you, you can read about the, these churches in Acts chapters 13 and 14. So Paul, he, he journeyed through these places, he journeyed through these cities, preaching the gospel, declaring the good news of Christ crucified to this largely Gentile audience, and people were being saved. They're being converted. Churches were now beginning to form. They were beginning to flourish. They were beginning to, to be established through their preaching and through their ministry. And then, in fact, in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, we learn that after they had established these churches, on their way then back now to Antioch, they returned visiting the Galatian churches again. So, listen, Paul loved these churches. Paul he loved the Galatian Christians. And, and that's really important to understand because, as we'll see, of Paul's tone and his passion in this letter. So why is he writing to them? Question number two. Why write this letter? Why the letter of Galatians? Most scholars believe that this is Paul's earliest letter. It's written somewhere around 48 to 49 A.D., and in this letter, what Paul is doing is he is confronting a massive problem in these churches. That while, yes, the Galatians, they had heard the gospel, they had believed the gospel, they were beginning to grow in the gospel. However, something had gone terribly wrong. And here's what had happened. After Paul and Barnabas had left, some false teachers came in. Scholars often refer to them as the Judaizers, although Paul never calls them that. Chapter 2, look there, chapter 2, verse 12, he calls them the circumcision party. The end of the letter, chapter 6, verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12, he says it's those who would force you to be circumcised. Look over in chapter 10, verse, or chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 10. He says, they're the ones who are troubling you. The troublemakers. Or again, back in chapter 1, verse 7, some who would trouble 
you. Chapter 5, verse 12, those who unsettle you. So they are troubling, they are unsettling the faith of these Galatian believers. How so? Question number three, what were they teaching? What were they teaching? Well, they had begun to teach something new. Always beware of anyone who comes to you with something new. And these false teachers, they, they didn't completely throw out the gospel. No, they just twisted it. They, they, they just distorted it a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 7. Some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse 9. Chapter 1, they were preaching a gospel different from the one they had received. So, so they distorted the gospel. How? By just adding some things to it. That's all they did, just added some things. And listen, when you begin to add something to the gospel, you distort the gospel. So you don't have to be a full-blown heretic to get the gospel wrong. No, all you have to do, all you got to do, all you need to do is just add some stuff to it. That's all. So you can distort it by simple addition to it. And so these were a group of Jewish people who had come into these churches, who they themselves had actually come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but now, now they were teaching something new. They were teaching something different. And they were saying, here's what they were saying, yes, you need Jesus in order to be forgiven. You need Jesus in order to be welcomed into the family of God, but you also need some other things as well. And here's what they were adding. Basically, they're saying, if you want to be saved, then you must become functionally Jewish. you got to become a Jew. That in order to be counted among God's people, yeah, Jesus' death, it was necessary to remove your sins, but it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't, it wasn't enough. No, in order for you to be right with God, you must now submit to the entirety of the law of Moses. And so, for example, you must be circumcised. Chapter 5, look there, verse 2. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you, Paul says. So if you try to, if you try to add anything, anything, even, even a little thing like circumcision to the gospel, just one thing, Christ means nothing to you. But also, not only must you be circumcised, you must also keep the Jewish dietary ceremonial laws. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. No doubt this is a reference to the Jewish calendar, Jewish feasts. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. So then in order to be right with God, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, they're saying you have to submit yourself to the Old Testament law. It was Jesus plus the law. It was Jesus plus something. And perhaps, worst of all, worst of all these guys, they were using and distorting the Old Testament Scriptures in order to justify their teachings. To make it sound almost right, almost biblical even. And by doing so, here's what they did. They turned the Gospel message not into a message of good news, they turned the gospel message not into a message of good news of what God has done in order to save you. They have turned it into commands that you must do in order to be saved. And sadly, verse 6, the Galatians, they were starting to believe it. So how does Paul respond? What's, what's his response? Well, needless to say, Paul is a bit worked up. <laughs> uh, he is... He is angry. He is, he is furious. His fuse is lit. In fact, in verses 1 to 10, the, these opening words here from Paul, notice how different they are from any of Paul's other 
normal greetings. I mean, you just feel it as you read it, don't you? These words, they are unlike anything in any of his other letters. How so? Well, because notice how there is no greeting, there is no prayer for them, there's no thanksgiving for them, there's no commendation of these churches like there is in his other letters. I mean, Paul even commends the Corinthians, but not the Galatians. No, he's got nothing good to say about them. No, he just gets right to the point, doesn't he? Timothy George, he says in his commentary, from beginning to end, this letter bristles with passion and sarcasm and anger. He is angry. He is, he is sarcastic. He is, he is passionate. George goes on to say, though this was the teary-eyed tenderness of a distraught mother who must endure all over again the pains of childbirth because of her children, they, he says, the Galatians, were in danger of committing spiritual suicide. So in verses 8 and 9, chapter 1, notice, if anyone preaches another gospel, because there is no other gospel, then let him be cursed. He's calling down a curse on them if they believe another gospel. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, you are fools. Who has bewitched you? Chapter 5, verse 12. He wishes that these false teachers who were preaching circumcision, he wished that they would just emasculate themselves. Go ahead and finish the job. So, he's a bit worked up. Why? Because, friends, the gospel is at stake here. And I think right away, right away, we see some application, don't we? Brothers and sisters, what should really get you worked up, what should really bother you, I mean, there's a lot of things that could bother you out there in the world right now. Just look at the world, my goodness. But what should really bother you, what should really get you worked up, what should lead to this teary-eyed heartbreak and sorrow is when you see the truth of the gospel being distorted. Is that your response when the gospel's at stake? However, these false teachers, they, they weren't only distorting, they weren't only compromising the gospel, they were also doing something else that was just as devastating as well. And we see it here, notice in Paul's opening Words. In fact, what Paul does here in verses 1 to 5 now is he, he begins to unpack here two of the major themes that we're going to see in the letter of Galatians. Just here in his opening words that he's going to return to again and again throughout this letter. And here are those two themes. Let me just give you those two themes that we see in this letter. Number one, it's Paul's defense of his apostleship meaning the authority of his message. We see that all the way from chapter 1, verse 6, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 10. It's very, very autobiographical. He's defending his apostleship, his message, the authority of it. And then the second theme we see in this letter is that he defends and explains the gospel message. And we see that from chapter 2, verse 11, really all the way to the end of the letter. Those are the two themes. And so he introduces us here in verses 1 to 5 to those two major themes. So I just want to give you three points this morning as we work our wages through these five verses. Three, three points today. Number one, the authority of the gospel message. Verses 1 and 2, the authority of the gospel message. Second, the heart of the gospel message. Verses 3 and 4. And then finally, the goal of the gospel message, verse 5. And we'll be brief because we'll return to these themes again in weeks ahead. So first, I want you to notice with me the authority of the gospel message. The authority of the gospel message, verses 1 and 2. So here were, here's the other thing that these false teachers in Galatia were doing. Not only were they distorting and twisting the gospel message, but they were also denying Paul's apostolic authority. They were attacking his credibility. They were denying his authority as one of the apostles. 
So in essence, here's what they were saying. They were saying, hey, Galatians, you don't have to listen to the Apostle Paul. He's not really an apostle. So his message, it doesn't really carry any authority. And, and his gospel, really, it's, it's lacking. It's, it's missing something. But we come to you with the true gospel. Jesus plus the law equals salvation. That's really what they were saying. Which is why Paul defends himself and his apostleship all the way from verse 6 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 10. It's that big of a deal. Why? Does Paul feel personally slighted? Is he on a power trip? Well, no, it's because to reject his authority as an apostle is also to reject his gospel. It's to reject his message. It's, and to reject his message is to reject God's message. He comes with the authority of God Himself. And so Paul, again, his only concern here is the Gospel. The Gospel's at stake. So in verses 1 and 2, look there. Notice, notice Paul's extensive introduction and explanation here to his apostleship. Look there, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. So just notice here how different this introduction is from any other of his other letters, of his other introductions. Now yeah, he, he oftentimes will refer to himself as an apostle, but here he elaborates on it in detail. Why? Well, notice in verse 1, he refers to himself as Paul an apostle. An apostle, which should lead us to ask the question, what's an apostle? Really, there, there are two ways we can talk about an apostle. Here they are. Number one, there's a, there's a general, more broad sense of the term, sort of what we might call a little a apostle, a lowercase a apostle. And the second would be the more particular sense. It's a uppercase a apostle. Capital A. So first, there, there's, there's an apostle in a more general sense. An apostle simply means, it can mean simply just a, a sent one. It can refer to someone who is sent out, like we might send out a missionary. It's the same word used in Acts 14, verse 14, to refer to both Paul and Barnabas who were sent out from the church at Antioch. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as an apostle to the Philippians. So the, the term apostle, it can have a more general sense. It can have a more broad, inclusive sense, right? So they're sent out by churches. They're sent out by men. They're sent out by mission agencies, apostles. However, that's not the apostle that Paul is talking about here. That's not the kind of apostleship Paul is talking about in verse 1. So what kind of apostle then? Well, it's the second kind. It's the capital A kind. It's, it's a more particular, more exclusive sense. Meaning a, a select group. And the criteria for this select group, it was twofold. Number one, they had seen, they were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. The resurrected Christ. And number two, they had been personally commissioned by Christ Himself. With the authority of Christ. In verse 1, notice, Paul specifies that his apostleship is not the former. It's not the, the general kind. It's not the inclusive kind. No, it's the latter. It's the more particular. It's the more exclusive kind. That he had been personally commissioned by Christ Himself. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from 
the dead. So, first notice Paul's authority. It didn't come from any man. Verse 1, not from men, nor through man. So in other words, he's saying, no man sent me. No mere man, no mere mortal gave me this message, gave me this authority. No, I am, I am a capital A apostle. I, I, I am not an apostle in any human sense of the word. No, his authority, he's saying, is divine. My authority comes from God. Look there, verse 1. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. In other words, Paul's authority, it was from God Himself. He had been sent by God. He had been commissioned by God. Not by a man. Verse 1. Through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So notice there, Paul sees Jesus of Nazareth as fully divine, doesn't he? Side by side with God the Father. So that there is no distinction in terms of the authority of the Son and the authority of the Father. And, verse 1, look there, who raised him from the dead. Now, why? Why does Paul highlight here the resurrection? Well, yeah, the resurrection, it's essential to the gospel. But it seems the reason he's highlighting the resurrection here is because he wants the Galatians to know from the very beginning that he's been sent, he's been commissioned by the risen Christ himself. Right? Acts 9, the road to Damascus. And so, just like all the other apostles, he too had seen, he too had been sent by the risen Lord himself. And then in verse 2, look there, in addition, just to further support his claim to authority, verse 2, and all the other brothers who are with me. So, Paul's authority, it wasn't from men, it was from God, and yet Paul, he wasn't alone. He wasn't a rogue out there. No, he had the endorsement of all the churches, all the brothers. All the brothers. So therefore, Paul says, my authority, my authority is a divine authority. And so, to reject his authority, to reject his words, to reject his message, to reject his gospel is to reject God himself. And that he now, as an apostle, he speaks and he writes authoritatively on behalf of God Almighty. His gospel is from God. Wow. Which means, church, that we don't have apostles in the capital A sense of the word anymore. No. However, we do have their authoritative writings here. So while we don't believe in some kind of apostolic succession, as some do, right? The Pope, others, other cults and religions, no. We do have, however, apostolic succession passed down to us in the teachings of the apostles. We have their authoritative writings right here recorded for us in the Bible. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach also. Paul says, take my words and teach them. We have the completed canon of Scripture. And therefore, we don't have to add anything to the Apostles' Doctrine. Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 2, excuse me. The church is built on the foundation of the Apostles. You can't build on another foundation. You can't lay a different foundation than what they've already taught. So now we simply repeat and study the apostles' teaching. That's why in Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Which means that as we open this book, as we, as we study this book, as we study Galatians, get this, we are hearing we are reading 
we are studying the very words of God Himself. It means that this book, it means that the words of the Apostle Paul, they have an authority because they come from God Himself. And so we submit our hearts and our lives under the authority of this book. And it also means that what you believe about this book, Christian, determines how you approach this book. I mean, this book, it must be the most precious thing on the planet to you. Why? Because in it, God speaks. In it, God reveals Himself to us. He speaks in the pages of this book. He speaks to us in Galatians. And when He speaks, it's an authoritative word. It's a trustworthy word. It's a true word. It's a sure word. It's a completed word. And it also means, church, that to disbelieve and disobey what Paul says, his writings here, is to disbelieve and disobey God himself. It's to reject God's word. To reject his gospel. And this is why Paul so fiercely defends his apostolic authority, the authority of his message. But, what is his message? Second, look at the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel message. Verses 3 and 4. Look there. And we see here, the heart of the gospel message, in fact, we really see here the entire theme of Galatians in just verses 3 and 4. The entire letter could be summarized here. Look there, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So what is Paul's message? What is his gospel? Well, notice first, his gospel is a message of grace and peace. Grace and peace. Look there, verse 3. Grace to you and peace. Now, those are not uncommon words for Paul. No. Those are not uncommon in his letters. But church, those are not throwaway words. <laughs> they are not meaningless words. Don't rush past those words there. Verse 3. Grace and peace. This is what the Gospel is. It is a message of grace and peace. John Stott, he writes this, he says, these two words, they summarize Paul's gospel of salvation. The nature of salvation is peace or reconciliation. Peace with God, peace with men, peace within. And he says, the source of salvation is grace. It is God's free favor, irrespective of any human merit or works. It is His loving kindness to the undeserving. And this grace and peace, he says, flow from the Father and the Son together. So in verse 3, notice he says, it's a message of grace and peace. This is what Galatians is all about. From beginning to end, it is about grace and peace. Verse 3, it's grace. God's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. It is a free gift of God. It cannot be earned, this gift. There are no ways in which you can earn your way into His good graces. No, it is all grace. It is all undeserved. And the Galatians, they were compromising grace. And thus, they were gutting the very heart of the Gospel message. Martin Luther I already said he, he loved Galatians. He loved this letter. And, and of course he did because he spent most of his life as a, as a Roman Catholic monk knowing that he didn't measure up to God's standard. And Luther, he knew that he was doomed. He looked at God's law. He looked at his disappointing life and he felt sure that God hated him and as a result of that, he too hated God. And then he saw it. He saw it. You know what he saw? Here's what he saw. Nothing. 
nothing. Luther writes this in his commentary on Galatians. Do we then do nothing? Do we work nothing for the attaining of this righteousness? I answer nothing at all. For this is perfect righteousness to do nothing, to hear nothing, to know nothing of the law or of works, but only to know and believe Christ. Beloved, it's a message of grace. It's a message of doing nothing. It's grace. And, verse 3, notice also it's a message of peace. Friend, the gospel brings peace. And first and primarily, it brings peace with God. And why do you need peace with God? Well, you need peace with God because we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. We are under the judgment of God. But the gospel brings peace. And where there is peace with God, there is peace within. And there is peace then extended to others as well. Luther, again, in his commentary on Galatians, he says, these two words, grace and peace, do contain the whole sum of Christianity. Grace gives the forgiveness of sins and peace gives a quiet and joyful conscience. For peace of conscience can never be had unless sin be first forgiven. Friend, do you have a heavy burdened conscience this morning? Weighed down by guilt and sin and shame, what you need is you need grace and peace. And the gospel offers to you grace and peace. And that's what this letter is all about. But how does this grace come to us, this peace? Well, notice the gospel message of grace and peace. It comes to us, second, because it's a message of substitution. Substitution. Look there, verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins. For our sins. The, the message of the gospel is a message of substitution. That's the very heart of what the gospel message is. Christ gave himself for, for our sins. Meaning, he gave himself in place of our sins. That Jesus died in the place of sinners. Penal, substitutionary atonement. That's what the gospel is. That our sin, it deserves His judgment. It deserves the righteous wrath of God. And Christ has come in our place. He has borne the judgment of our, our sins. And He gave Himself in our place. He, he stood in our stead. He died the death that we deserve. Galatians chapter 3, look there. Chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says, Because we've broken God's law, bringing therefore now the curse of God on us. Galatians 3, 13, notice the substitution language. Christ redeemed us from the curse. How? By becoming, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, we had a curse on us. We had broken the law. We were under His judgment. But Christ, He came as a curse for us. And so, in the cross, God treated Jesus as my sins deserve. He treated Jesus as if He had committed my sins. And God took an eternity of what I deserved. And He bound it up for a moment. And He unleashed it on His own Son at the cross. Cursed instead of me. Forsaken instead of me. In my place, condemned, he stood. He was my substitute. So it's a message of substitution, but notice also, it doesn't end there. Yes, Paul's going to go on in this letter to define and unpack what this substitution, this justification means, but notice also in verse 4, the gospel is a message of sanctification as well. Of sanctification. Look there. Yes, it's a message of substitution, justification, really, before God, but the gospel is also a message of sanctification. Now, we can't confuse the two 
Justification and sanctification. They're not the same things. Don't distort the Gospel in that way. But Paul's clear that God has justified us for a reason. Look there, verse 4. Who gave Himself for us to deliver us from the present evil age. So He's given Himself for our sins, justification, to deliver us from the present evil age. That's sanctification. So grace is an undeserved gift from God. But grace is also a power. It's a transforming power in your life. So there's saving grace, and then there's sanctifying grace. And notice in verse 4 that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins, Paul says, in order to deliver us from this present evil age. Now what does that mean? Well, that word deliver, it harkens back there to the, the Exodus, right? Where God had delivered, He had liberated His people from bondage, slavery in Egypt. And so, Paul is saying now that in the Gospel, what Jesus has done is He's delivered us, He's freed us from the bondage of sin and Satan and this evil age. In fact, in verse 4, notice He calls it this present evil age. The Bible divides all of human history into only two ages. Do you realize that? Only two ages. There's there's this age, this present evil age, and then there is the age to come. And this present evil age, it's an age, Paul says, is defined, it's described as evil. It's dominated by sin and evil and corruption, right? But Christ, He's come to liberate us from that. He's come to free us from that now. Now. And He has now, by His death and His resurrection, He has already now ushered in the age to come. That's why in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, if you remember when Jesus shows up, He says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's now. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now. So, it's, it's, it's already, it's, it's, it's not full yet, but it's a reality. So, we're living now in these two ages, this already not yet. So yeah, we've been freed through the cross. But also, Paul wants us to experience that freedom now. He wants us to walk in that freedom now. No longer living in bondage to sin and in bondage to Satan and controlled by our fleshly desires. And that's what Galatians chapters 5 and 6 are all about. How the gospel now begins to transform the way that we live. He delivered us from the present evil age as we await the age to come. So the gospel message is a message of sanctification. And then, finally, it's also a message of love. Of love. Look there again, verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And then notice this phrase. According to the will of God our Father. For God so loved the world that He gave. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. The Gospel message is that God loves you. He loves you so much that He gave His Son for you. He didn't give His Son in order to love you. He gave His Son because He loves you. It's a message of love initiated by God Himself. But there's a greater, more ultimate reason why He gave Him. Finally, the goal of the Gospel message. Verse 5. Look there. Finally. What's the goal? Ultimately, why, why did God do this? Why did He give His Son Yes, it's because He loves us. Yes, it's because He wants to show us grace. But there's a greater reason. There's a greater goal. There's a greater 
more ultimate purpose behind it all. Look at verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So church, the goal of the Gospel, the goal of the Gospel is so that all glory and all honor and all majesty and all praise would go to God and to God alone. So that it would glorify Him. So that it would magnify Him over all and above all, forever and ever. That's the goal of the Gospel. Now, how does the Gospel do that? How does the Gospel bring glory to God? Well, here's how. Because God, in His divine, perfect wisdom, He he devised a plan. He orchestrated a plan whereby He could uphold and He could display His perfect justice, His perfect holiness, His righteousness. He could punish our sins. He found a way to remain perfectly holy and committed to punishing evil and injustice. And yet at the same time, He also found a way that He could display and show off His love and His grace and His forgiveness and His glory. And the answer to that, the solution to that divine dilemma is the cross of Christ. And so, it is the cross then that fully reveals the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God because it's at the cross where He shows us that we could never save ourselves. We could never save ourselves. Only God can do that. Only God can accomplish that so that it would result in praise and glory and honor and worship to Him. That's the goal of the Gospel. So that He alone would receive the glory. Ephesians chapter 1. So that it would be to the praise of His glorious grace that it's not our doing, it is all His. And that any part of our salvation, it's not by our own merit, it's only by what Jesus has done. And if we try to take any part of that, it not only, it not only means that Jesus died in vain, it robs God of the glory He deserves. And so in verse 5, Paul now, as he contemplates this grace, as he contemplates this peace that's given in Christ, his response, notice, is simply to worship. To whom be glory forever and ever again. Amen. So Paul, notice, begins his letter here with this explosion in his heart of worship to God. And beloved, to contemplate who God is, to contemplate what He has done for us in Christ, to meditate on this grace and this peace that we have now, it should produce the same response in you and in me. Because if we get Galatians, if we really, truly get this letter, then we'll fall down on our faces in worship and praise to Him. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so I pray that in this study, as we study this letter, it would lead you to deeper worship. It would lead you into a deeper understanding of the glories of Calvary and that you would come on Sunday mornings expecting to go deeper. Don't come thinking you know it all. You've heard it all. I pray you'd go deeper. Ask Him. Because listen, all all you need to be saved Perhaps that's you this morning, in the room this morning right now. All you need to be saved is nothing. I mean, Luther got it. We we can't be saved by some qualification in us. All we got to do is confess we have no qualifications, and then we're qualified. (laughs) And so the only thing you need is need. Do you see your need? Can your heart say, to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, together this morning, we magnify Your grace and Your glory. We want to sing and we want to celebrate the cross this morning because of the grace and the peace that have come to us. I pray that as a result of the study of this letter, Lord, that you would lead us to a deeper understanding of both of those realities. A deeper understanding of your love. A deeper understanding of the glories 
of Calvary so that by it we would live in the security and the rest and the joy and the freedom of Christ. And so that by it we would be changed. We would live in the liberating power of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Would you work that in your people as we look together at this letter? Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. The message of grace and peace, it, it prepares us to come to the Lord's table because here we're reminded of the grace that God has shown us in His Son. Here we're reminded of the peace that we now have through the sacrifice that He's made on the cross. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Grace and peace through Christ. And on the night before he was crucified, Jesus, he told his disciples he was going to the cross. He was going to the cross in order to purchase grace and peace for them. In Matthew 26, verse 26, we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after breaking it, or blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He went to the cross to purchase grace and peace. And so friend, all you need then to come to this table is to be hungry. To be in need. To, to recognize your need for grace and peace. To recognize your need for Christ. And so if that's you this morning, we invite you to come and take of the Lord's table. But if, if you've never come to Jesus with the empty hands of need, then let me just say that this, this table isn't for you. Because this table, it isn't, it isn't for the self-righteous. It isn't for those who don't think they need Him, trying to earn their own way to Him. No, there is no place here for the self-righteous at this table. But maybe you need to be saved today. That's you. But if you're trusting Christ, this table is for you. And let me just say that if you're not a member of Second Baptist Church, and yet you're in good standing with your local church where you're a member, we would invite you to come as well. So first, we take the bread. Pull back the first layer there. There's two layers you'll see. First one, take the bread, symbolizing the gift of Christ for us is broken body for us. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend just a moment, just a moment in reflection, crying out to God for your need for Christ. Maybe confessing your sin to Him. Would you take a moment? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Thank you, God, for the gift of your Son. Let's take the bread. And then second, we take the cup, symbolizing the shed blood of Christ for our sins who was our substitute 
Why don't you spend a few moments just in, in thanking God for the cross and the peace we have through the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, Through Christ, He has reconciled us to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Let's pray. We'll sing together. Lord, again, thank You. For the grace of the cross, the finished work that has said, It's done. Come to me and receive grace. So we want to sing and celebrate of that grace now. So, Lord, receive the glory you deserve for what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, please. And as we started the service by reading Psalm 130, we're going to sing it now by grace alone. Out of the depths I cry to you. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.